I think payment is a very interesting sector in terms of the way it's moved. I would have said 20, 25 years ago, payments was a relatively boring business. What it did do was move basically process transactions. But I think it's gone from being boring to moved into the boardroom. Welcome to Brookfield Perspectives, a podcast from Brookfield that explores how the firm invests in the backbone of the global economy. What do we mean by that? The things you interact with every day that you may not even think about, like wind turbines, water treatment facilities, cell towers, and office buildings. Investing in these critical assets helps support and accelerate the pace of progress in businesses and communities around the world. I'm Lauren Steffi, and I've been writing about investing in financial markets for the better part of three decades. I'll be your guide as we meet the business leaders at one of the world's largest alternative asset managers. We'll talk about how to spot trends early, what it takes to turn contrarian ideas into opportunities, and how to uncover the next great company. And we'll go on-site where the rubber meets the road at innovative companies and projects around the globe. Our current arc of the series covers digitalization and how it's touching different sectors of the economy. In this episode, we'll unpack the topic of financial infrastructure, how it differs from traditional infrastructure, and how global megatrends such as digitalization and deglobalization are driving a global transition of the world's financial ecosystem. Nowhere is this more visible than in the global payments market, which must build rapid scale to keep pace with consumer demand. My guests today are Sir Ron Khalifa, Vice Chair and Head of Financial Infrastructure Investment at Brookfield, and Anuj Ranjan, CEO of Brookfield's Private Equity Group. They're both based in London. I kicked off the conversation by asking Anuj and Ron to share a little bit about their backgrounds. My name is Anuj Ranjan. I've been with Brookfield for about 19 years. Today, I work in our private equity business, helping look after the business on a more global basis. But more recently, been spending a lot of time looking at financial infrastructure and digital technologies that enable the movement of money. We've invested quite heavily in the space. My name is Ron Khalifa. I've been involved in financial services throughout my career. I've built a payments business called WorldPay, which became the preeminent global business several years ago. I've been involved in another business called Network International that I was chairing, which is a prominent business in the Middle East and Africa region, again, in the payments and fintech space. That business has now moved from public markets and is being bought by Brookfield, which is how I got introduced to Brookfield. There are some other things that I'm involved in as well. I'm a non-executive board director at the Bank of England. A couple of years ago, I put together a report for the UK government on fintech to try and ensure that UK stayed at the forefront of fintech globally. So devised a strategy and a delivery model for that to continue to flourish. I'm delighted to be here with a kind of a Brookfield hat on today and look forward to the conversation. So I wanted to start out by talking about this concept of financial infrastructure. We hear it a lot. It's sort of ill-defined. What do we mean when we talk about financial infrastructure and how does that differ from what we traditionally think of as infrastructure? So Lawrence, just to level set, the world's financial infrastructure is crumbling. These are archaic legacy systems that often don't talk to each other or provide customers the kind of service that we expect in a digitally enabled world where everything is immediate. So as an example, if you've tried to send money between two countries anytime in the last month, weeks, years, you'll notice how long that takes, sometimes two, three weeks, sometimes even longer for them to cite the funds. Sometimes your funds actually get lost into the ether and you only really figure out where they are after you get a notice back. 
And it's shocking that that's the case in the same world where technology has gotten to a point where everything else happens instantaneously. And a lot of that are these old systems, often owned by large financial services conglomerates today, where they haven't been able to invest the appropriate amount of capital, or it's not their core business. And so the motivation isn't there to upgrade these businesses and provide a level of service that people expect. So what we like to say at Brookfield is we are big buyers of the world's infrastructure. We buy the backbone of the global economy. In the case of physical infrastructure, that's usually physical assets that enable the movement of people, data, and commodities. In the case of financial infrastructure, it's digital assets that enable the movement of money. Think of big shipping containers, trains, rail lines, all that good stuff. Financial infrastructure is moving money, but it's also at the heart of the global economy. I'm talking here about businesses that are focusing on payment rails. They may be core software systems. They may be financial exchanges or systems of record, clearing and settlement or back office services. These are businesses that we often don't think about when you're moving money or doing things within the financial ecosystem. But these businesses are at the heart of making that ecosystem work. They're typically businesses that are asset light. In other words, they're software or platforms across these sectors of payments or capital markets or banking and lending or insurance. And very interesting, I think these financial infrastructure businesses tend to share similar fundamental characteristics or aspects to the physical infrastructure assets. You know, crucially, they're stable and they're scalable. They're very, very embedded into the financial ecosystems that they operate in. They're typically businesses that are very predictable because they've got recurring revenue and they've got strong cash flow generation. But they also tend to operate within a regulatory environment, which I think is a good thing because that creates a high barrier to entry and the cost of compliance. So these are scale businesses, but they are very much at the heart of the global financial system. Ron, the way you said scale, it just hits the nail on the head. Imagine a toll road that had no capacity constraint or a gas pipeline which could move infinite gas. Once you have these systems, the amount of growth that's possible is unlimited and the tailwinds are all behind it. We are moving to a cashless society. Digitalization has enabled technology and systems to be at a place where the need for paper money is behind us. And every country in the world, we think, will catch up to that. So it seems almost like this is one of these businesses where it kind of like physical infrastructure, everybody takes it for granted and assumes that it's going to work. And if somebody doesn't step in and actually address these issues, it could cause big problems in the future. Is that an accurate way of describing it? Yeah, it's exactly that. When you walk into a room and you switch the light on in the room that you're in, you don't think about all the stuff that's happening in the background. But if it doesn't work, then you look around and think, what on earth has happened? So these are critical infrastructure assets or businesses that have got to work in order to keep the financial ecosystem moving. So how is digitization and digitalization changing how the businesses go to market? Technology allows so many different activities in everyday life to be done you know, more effectively, more efficiently, and quite often at a lower cost of delivery. Society is being transformed. And the way that we live our lives is so different now than it was just 10 or 15 years ago. Commerce is being conducted, frankly, anytime, anywhere, on any device. And significant change in how companies are operating and go to market is necessary to meet consumer demands. Digitization or digital behavior and customer expectation is gaining such a lot of momentum and is rapidly repositioning and rewiring how we purchase and consume any goods or services. And that pace of change is phenomenal. I'm always staggered at the fact that it took 
the airline industry 68 years for 50 million consumers to use airlines. For Twitter, it took two years. And for Pokemon Go, it took 19 days to gain the same number. Now, that disruption is happening in everyday life. And that pace of change is something that we've always got to sort of pause and think about. The examples I always give in terms of when people talk about is disruption really happening? I think it's reshaping sectors, businesses and industries. Think about the world's largest taxi company. It owns no taxis, Uber. Think about the world's largest accommodation provider. It owns no property. Airbnb. So this is something that's happening now and is here to stay. That's a great point, Ryan. And I think, Lauren, your question, digitalization is advanced and digitization, advanced technology and data to a point where if we were building the world's payment rails and systems today fresh, they would be reimagined and they would happen differently. Part of what we're dealing with is that we are built on a system that's frankly quite old and is quite fragmented. If you look at, as a more recent example of something that's changed all of our lives, the internet, the internet was created as an effectively free, open source platform that allowed contact and connection and transfer for the whole world, one constant system. That platform allowed companies like Amazon, Meta, or Facebook to be born on top of that platform, which have each in their own right become multi-trillion dollar companies. That's kind of how we like to think of the rails or the platform underneath payments today is that technology has gotten us to a point where businesses can be built on top of these payment rails or this platform that provide better services for customers. And the real money is going to be made by those who are providing the value added services for the customers, not by those simply just owning the rails. We quite often talk about this as the picks and shovels of the financial services sector. And that's where the opportunities lie in ensuring that digitization and deglobalization are driving changes that we wouldn't have thought about many, many years ago. And that's where opportunities exist for investment, to sort of redesign platforms and think through solutions, because there's a lot of friction in the system. I want to come back to deglobalization, because that's something we've talked a lot about on this podcast. But before we do, I want to follow up. It sounds like we're talking about digital disruption here in a lot of ways when it comes to these long-standing systems. And I'm wondering if you can give some examples about how this disruption is affecting industries like, for example, consumer banking or insurance, things like that. Consumer banking is a good example because historically, it was almost impossible to move from one bank to another. To open up a new bank account took ages in terms of requirements that were there, processes. It was a paper process. It just took weeks and, frankly, months to do. Now, you can be onboarded through an app in relatively short order. Sure, you've got to still go through the processes in terms of background checks that'll happen, but this is happening in minutes as opposed to days and weeks. So I think we're starting to see some real changes in terms of how technology is enabling a faster set of solutions for the friction that I refer to in the system. Insurance is another sector that's really been moving in a different way. For hundreds of years, the London insurance market tended to rely on a very systematic process of brokers bringing documents to underwriters to be physically stamped in person. And more recently, and accelerated by the pandemic, we're starting to see so many different ways for people to interact. Software solutions are at the forefront of this. Placing Platform Limited, PPL, is a business which has digitized that whole process with a digitally first approach, and it removes the in-person signing requirements. There are things that we do every day in our lives in terms of DocuSign. Those things were never permitted in systems in the past, but now they're part and parcel of how businesses interacted. 
And I think in the future, point of sale systems might not exist like they do today. You might walk into a store or a Starbucks, you're already starting to see this and just be able to take something off the shelf and go. And the payment happens simultaneously, electronically behind the scenes. If you think about it as a retailer, that allows them to not have a bottleneck be the teller and sell and push more goods. So there are going to be a lot of changes and people who have an integrated technology stack, a digital first approach rather than a physical approach and focus on value added services for their customers rather than just, hey, we're processing a transaction. It's how do we provide you more services at that point? I think those are going to be the winners. I can think of a particular chain of coffee shops where you load up your wallet with the amount of money you might want to spend, but you know that you always get a cappuccino with a one shot or whatever it is. As you walk into that coffee shop, it picks up the fact that you've walked in because it's got a beacon on your phone. It is interacted with the retail store. And as you walk in, your photograph is sitting there on the till of the guy who's going to serve a coffee for you. And that coffee is actually made for you. So it's ready by the time you actually get to the end of the queue. And you almost have no interaction because the payment is uploaded automatically. They know what you want automatically and you walk out. And the efficiency that that creates is quite stunning. So technology is moving at a pace that many still haven't noticed, but this is happening in the background and driving this change. We've talked a little bit about the digital first and consumerism trends. Well, what are some of the other trends that are driving this? One thing I'll add is deglobalization. This is critical infrastructure for the world. And we've seen how critical infrastructure can be utilized in geopolitics as well. And countries have realized that they do not want to have critical infrastructure for their people in the hands of one or two companies that are owned by one country. And they need to have that in their own countries. And that localization trend or deglobalization trend is driving a lot of investment to have leaders and champions in this space, managing this critical infrastructure and providing the services and investing in the tech capex that's required to upgrade these systems, just creating a ton of opportunity. Yeah, our platforms basically are capabilities where you build once, and then it's reused many, many times by different organizations. And these are essentially new business lines, and they're coming through as organizations start to think about how do they optimize the technology that's available to them at a lower cost in a more efficient way, and to deploy it faster as well. So these platforms are very, very strong players going forward. And it's a great opportunity in terms of the fact that they need to be funded, they need to be thought about, they need to be built, but they will be scalable. And that's the beauty of what these things are. The other trend, we've touched on it earlier, was regulation. The level of compliance that is now required around the world in different jurisdictions for financial services sectors in particular is just increasing. And we're seeing a real growth in solutions that provide these reg tech, the regulatory technology solutions, because they're driving efficiencies or reducing costs. When you think about all of these different trends that we're talking about, it's requiring businesses to fundamentally change the way that their business models are set up in the financial services sector. And that's allowing them to think about forces to think about what the solutions are going to be needed for the future in terms of what are their customers need, what do their businesses need. And these trends aren't going away. They're going to be a much greater force in the future, which will require heavy investment to ensure that they can play for the next set of decades. So you've got this demand on one side and the requirement for heavy investments. You have a lot of these systems that need to change. They're being owned by incumbent businesses and whatnot. What's going to be required to make this transition happen? It seems like it may take a bigger lift than some of the companies are willing to provide at this point. 
Lauren, I think you're hitting the nail on the head. Today, we're already seeing these financial services conglomerates and these banks move these critical infrastructure assets that require a lot of investment that aren't part of their core business off balance sheet. And that's not different than what we've seen with other forms of these kinds of infrastructure in the past. If you think back 40, 50 years, most companies, most conglomerates, even banks would have owned their own office buildings. We saw real estate come off balance sheet. It was a whole wave of that. Brookfield built a $300 billion business around real estate off of the back of the idea that people were moving these assets off balance sheet. Then came infrastructure. Once upon a time, a mining company would own its own pipeline, maybe own its own port, maybe own its own rail infrastructure. And all of that went off balance sheet because they didn't need to own that kind of infrastructure. They could use that capital elsewhere. Today, it's happening with renewable power and transition. There is a huge amount of investment required for transition, and people can't do it on balance sheets, so it's moving off as well. But we see the same exact trend happening here with financial infrastructure, and it's no different than what's happened before. It requires a different kind of owner who has a different kind of capital. And frankly, in this specific case, due to the technological disruption that's happening, someone with a real operating capability to drive these changes and improve these businesses. What is Brookfield doing in the payment space? We identified this space a couple of years ago. Our chair, Mark Carney, was a former governor of the Bank of England and governor of the Bank of Canada before. Ron referred to the amount of regulation that's in the sector, and Mark knows quite a bit about this space and really pointed us in this direction. And we paid a lot of attention to it. We had owned some financial infrastructure type assets in the past. We'd invested them in the past, and we'd had quite a good experience. We learned a little bit. So we started to invest slowly in a disciplined way, but started to look for more and more opportunities. We did one carve out from a major bank of a payment system in the United Arab Emirates, Magnati. That business through that carve out where we bought a majority stake from the bank, I'd say we built a real operating capability and we saw the power of the system. We were able to upgrade the technology and the business has frankly doubled in just a year and a half. We then spotted an opportunity in the public markets with Network International trading to what we thought was quite a low-level network being in 16 countries around the world and having a presence not only in merchant acquiring, but also payment processing and card issuing, all different parts of the payments value chain. We were able to finally be successful in privatizing that business. And between these two investments, a total of over $4 billion of enterprise value, we've deployed quite a bit into the sector and learned quite a bit. We were, of course, thrilled that Ron, who had built WorldPay before and had shared network after, had really been an authoritative figure in the space. We're thrilled that he was able to join us and along with the team that we've already got in place, able to actually take now a little bit more of a interest in investing in financial infrastructure more broadly. I think payment is a very interesting sector in terms of the way it's moved. I would have said 20, 25 years ago, payments was a relatively boring business. What it did do was basically process transactions. But I think it's gone from being boring to moved into the boardroom. It's become a real driver for revenue in terms of helping businesses grow their businesses. And that's happened because of the way information is passed from one to another. It's about the data that's at the heart of this. The global payments arena is a really good example of financial infrastructure. It sits there in the background. People don't think about it until something goes wrong. It benefits from all the characteristics that we talked about earlier. And it's got really strong tailwinds, which are driving the shift from cash and physical cards to digital digital payments. So when you start thinking about those cash to card, digitization and GDP growth, you have strong tailwinds that are making these businesses grow significantly. But also there's a lot of legacy players who have had businesses such as this that are still sort of buried somewhere in the financial systems of banks, 
And what we're looking at is how do we pull those out? How do we grow them? How do we drive value and make sure that there's a customer-centric world that moves the dial in terms of what can be done? So it's an exciting business, an exciting opportunity for the future, because I think that we'll continue to see some transformation. Given what we've seen in terms of the valuation for companies in this space, are we seeing some stagnation here? Or what's the long-term outlook? I think payment companies have gone through fairly significant peaks and troughs in terms of where they traded, particularly the listed ones. And that's because of high expectations, probably a lack of comprehension and understanding. But they've all got very, very similar characteristics. They're driven by scale. They have to be driven by an access to distribution where they're going to get customers from. They're driven by technology and they're driven by regulation. We've seen there's been a high growth phase. Valuations haven't stayed where they were. They've come down, many rightly, simply because there was a bit of overfluff within them. And the sector is now starting to mature. And as it matures, I think it's now found its right place. But the inherent capabilities that we're talking about, the digitization, the ability for these payment companies to take to the next frontier, we'll start seeing central bank digital currencies potentially coming in. There'll be an interplay between countries, there'll be cross-border activities. It'll make payments a lot cheaper and more efficient to go forward. And as it does that, I think it provides a huge opportunity for investors to capitalize on that. You were referring to central bank digital currencies, but I'm wondering how digital currencies in general, obviously have been a very hot topic over recent years. How is that going to factor into the evolution of this financial infrastructure? I think digital currencies, whether it's central bank digital currencies or wallets or potentially distributed ledger technology, which is the emergence that we're starting to see and crypto technologies, I think they're going to have a material impact on the sector. I think it's very difficult to be predictive as to how that will play out because one ingredient that's missing at the moment is regulation. And the lack of regulation, I think, is giving people a degree of anxiety about not just investing in it, but understanding it and applying it. But we're already seeing use cases emerge which allow authentication between parties to ensure that they are dealing with people on a frictionless basis in an efficient way. And that is something that we're starting to see. But regulatory standards will, I think, propel distributed ledger technology into a space that we haven't yet fathomed out. Absolutely. And I would just add that leaving the actual cryptocurrencies aside, like Bitcoin or Ethereum or things like that, the actual blockchain technology and distributed ledger technology is what has allowed us to actually upgrade most of these systems around the world and do things probably faster and more frictionless than we have in the past. So blockchain has been a key foundational technology for the next leap forward, if you will. I think it has a potential to it. It's so difficult to predict how that will play out because, as I said, I think it will work because it requires certain ingredients to work, to be embedded. And regulatory controls, regulatory understanding and standards will allow. Because at the moment, it's quite challenging to have interoperability between blockchain technology and fiat currencies, let's call it that. So you want to be able to have your dollars or your pounds or your euros to be able to be transferred into blockchain currencies and reverse back without the worry of spikes and troughs happening as an interplay. Given how important this whole financial infrastructure is to the global economy, how do you address things like cyber and corruption risks, especially from an investment standpoint? What are some of the big concerns there and how do you account for that? Look, I think cyber risk has been, frankly, around for the last probably 10, 15 years. And the enlightened organizations tend to speak about that first in most board meetings. In other words, what are they doing? How are they ensuring that their business is protected as much as it's possible to do by building a moat to ensure that others can't get in? 
However, the reality is the bad guys are always going to have tall ladders. And it's about making sure that your ladders are able to keep up with those tall ladders to stop people getting in. We all make a choice in our homes between security and access. When we leave our home, we may put an alarm on, but we have the choice to put barriers or bars up on our windows. We choose not to do that. So it really is about taking the precautions and it's no different in business. But I do think that cyber continues to be a huge risk for businesses and the level of attacks are becoming more sophisticated by the day. But keeping investing in them and making sure that these platforms of these businesses are thinking about that on a regular basis and debating it and more importantly, investing in it is going to be the way to protect it. I don't think there's any magic answers in this, sadly. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't bring up AI in this discussion because it tends to come up in every discussion. So how is AI going to affect the changes that are coming or the evolution of the marketplace here? I'm glad that you asked that because we've been talking a lot about legacy systems being upgraded to provide a better service that we expect today. We haven't talked a lot about what's coming in the future. And the future for financial infrastructure and payments is very, very bright. If you think of AI, the technology itself around AI is not so special. Artificial neural networks have been around forever. What really makes a difference in AI is the amount of data that you have available in a digital format that you can process and the computational power that you have both through chips and access to energy to process that data. And all of that has come to a certain level today where we can do a lot, enter GPT 3.5 and 4 and everything else. But what's great about this business is if you think about payments, they collect an enormous amount of data. Every small, medium, and large financial transaction that happens anywhere in the world, just we at Brookfield in our systems, and we've invested about only $4 billion in two companies, we're processing about 400 transactions a second. We have not even scratched the surface of what we can do with that data. AI gives us a new tool to unleash, to both assess the data, organize it, come up with better solutions for our customers and merchants, and better solutions for actually the consumers as well, being able to provide them potentially tailored, value-added products or services that meet their needs and do something special for them. So I think we're at the start of that wave, and I think that's a whole new avenue of growth. And whether you think about it through predictive AI or generative AI, the use cases are starting to come through. A use case in terms of a predictive AI is you can think about fraud detection. The task for a bank is they want a faster, a more efficient way of identifying fraudulent transactions. And the machine learning fraud detection model would be the way that they would use it. So the user would put in some parameters and the process would then spew out and classify the outliers and the potential cases of fraud. If you think about it through a generative AI model, AI would support code generation that the bank would want to write code that can be used to classify digitized banking statements. So there's a lot of sophistication that's happening that, frankly, expertise is being built on now that'll make a difference for generations to come. What's surprised you the most in this space over the last decade or so? For me personally, who's only been investing in this space for the last several years, what surprised me was how rapid the pace of change was or is. The movement of cash to digital, we all expected it. We all know it's coming. We all know what's happening. But that movement is happening far faster than I ever would have expected. And the ability to provide digital solutions on top of just a standard payment, buy now, pay later, a special offer, FX trades on the spot, these are also increasing, the usage of which is increasing far faster than I would have expected. We've been a beneficiary of this as we've seen the growth in the businesses that we've invested in just due to these natural tailwinds that are happening in this natural transition. 
but it did surprise us how fast it was happening. And it gives us a lot of excitement when we look at new businesses we can invest in, knowing that we've seen this trend already and we think it's going to continue. I think the only thing I'd add is that we're starting to see, I think, a greater awareness in terms of financial literacy because of technology. Technology is enabling people to understand their finances a little better because they've got access to information in a way that they didn't have. And I think that's been a really pleasant surprise for many as they start to manage and control their own money themselves. The consequence of that is that I think what surprised me is essentially the emergence of how many apps are available. How many apps people have got on their phone now is phenomenal. Now, you could argue that's a bit of a headache in itself because you've got too many and you've got to navigate your phone to work out where the apps are. But what that's doing is it's spurring opportunities in terms of organizations who are thinking about frictions that are in the system and trying to create frictionless apps or solutions, which is providing a new boost for what is essentially a very established and old industry. So it's an exciting opportunity, and I think it really bodes well for where the world is going to be moving to in terms of financial infrastructure. Thank you guys for being with us. Thank you all. Thank you, Lauren. That's all for today's episode. Thanks to Anuj and Ron for sharing their perspectives. To hear more from business leaders at Brookfield and beyond, check out our other episodes on decarbonization, deglobalization, and digitalization wherever you listen. And stay tuned for more from Brookfield Perspectives. Audiation.